Today's passage in James can be pretty daunting. And frankly, many, many books can and have been written about the subject of faith and works, how salvation, faith, works, how they all fit together, etc. And it's easy to get lost in the weeds on some of this stuff. And sometimes the more you think about it, the more confused you get. At least that's my experience with it. And so before we jump into the text, I'd like to offer a few things that can serve as like filters or lenses or anchor points that have helped me understand James chapter two. Uh, first, remember, the aim of James's letter is maturity. If I could summarize all of James in a very direct and blunt sentence, it would be, it's time to grow up. If I could say that as nicely as possible. That's the point of James's letter, growing up. With that said, you can easily break down the five chapters of James to give you five simple tests or signs or marks of spiritual maturity or progress. Uh, we've covered this in week one, but just in case you forgot or you're just now joining us in the study, here's a fast refresher. In James chapter one, you are patient when under trial and testing. That's what the mature person does. Uh, in James chapter two, we learn that the mature person practices the truth instead of just talking about it or believing in it. That's where we're at right now. In James chapter three, the mature person controls their tongue. In James chapter four, they're a peacemaker instead of a troublemaker. In James chapter five, you're prayerful in times of trouble. And so th that's a very, very simple kind of broad brush stroke. It's obviously not an exhaustive list of what spiritual maturity looks like, but just in James's five chapters in his letter or epistle, we can look at those and it's a general framework and scope and sequence or outline for this little book. So I think that's very helpful. If you um, go back to the heading of um, practicing the truth, which is the, the point of James chapter two, is that a mature, healthy follower of Jesus actually puts into practice the truth of the gospel. Um, you can actually divide that chapter into, into halves. Um, the first part, which we looked at last week, is faith and love, essentially. Those who, in James's words, hold to faith or claim to faith in Christ must love people as God loves them, not showing partiality or favoritism. In other words, real followers of Jesus don't discriminate based on outward appearances or even socioeconomic statuses. And that was last week, faith and love. Today, we look at faith and work. So this kind of idea of faith is prevalent in James chapter 2. In the, in, in, the, in the context of uh, putting truth into action. And so um, that's just that's the scope of James. Now, the second thing that's helpful as we jump into this is, is it's helpful to zoom out and to see how crucial faith is in our spiritual life. We even call it our faith or the faith, or we ask, are you a person of faith? And we use this important word faith a lot, as we should. In Ephesians 2, we learn that we are saved by faith. In 2 Corinthians 5, we walk by faith. In Hebrews 11, we learn that without faith, it's impossible to please God. In Romans 14, we learn that whatever we do apart from faith is sin. In Hebrews, uh, we learn, chapter 12, we learn that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. The three most basic Christian virtues are faith, hope, and love. And so faith is a big deal, and, and it's, it's worth talking about and thinking about deeply. So the third thing I want to offer to you as we jump into James 2, and this is something I learned this week, 
in the Hall of Fame of Faith chapter in the Bible, Hebrews 11, if you're familiar with Hebrews 11, it's just a few pages before James, we should notice that all the people mentioned or commended for their faith did things. For example, by faith, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice. By faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Abraham went on a journey. By faith, Moses opposed slavery and said to Pharaoh, let my people go. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea. You get the point. Um, go and read Hebrews chapter 11 this week and look for faith in action and look for action words. The idea that faith is merely an intellectual understanding of the world is foreign to Hebrews 11 as well as the whole scriptures. And so you'll see, if you just read Hebrews 11, you'll see um, that what we call today dynamic faith is that faith works. Faith has action. It's not just this thing you think about or you believe or you subscribe to, right? So as we read James 2, have those things top of mind, that mature followers of Jesus practice the truth, that faith is central to our spirituality in this big realm, and that real dynamic saving faith is accompanied with a bias towards action and doing God-centered things. Now, the doing doesn't save us, but the real faith that saves us does things. And so that's kind of the nuance there. So if you've got a Bible, let's go to James chapter 2. We'll be at the last half of it, starting in verse 14. We'll also have these on the screen, but I encourage you to um, have a, a Bible with you. I don't know if you can see this, but I underline a lot of things and start looking at themes, and it's very helpful um, to have a relationship with a analog Bible, um, although I like the Bible app too. So let's read James 2, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the word of our Lord. I've heard a lot of three-point sermons in my life, especially ones where all the points start with the same letter. For some reason, I inwardly cringe when I hear them. 
And so if that's you, please forgive me for stepping into that cliche today. I, I just don't know how to teach this text without doing just that. Um, if you look at verse 14, James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can, and the phrase here is, that faith save him. James says, that faith, as if there are several varieties of faith. We will learn here that not all faith is equal, apparently. And so, Let's look for some categories of faith. There's three of them. They all start with the letter D. I'm sorry, but that's just how I understand it. The first variety of faith is what James says, dead faith. Faith that works that is dead. It's a faith that says things, but doesn't do them. Look for that um, pattern of says in this first portion. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. All right, so as followers of Jesus, it's not enough to just say things or even say religious things like, Go in peace. Be warmed and filled. I mean, how often have you heard someone give you a, a really lame religious greeting and you could sense the love of Christ really isn't behind that? They're just saying these words, but they're empty. Uh, this is a faith that affects the mind and the mouth. It affects the head, but it doesn't affect the heart. And it certainly doesn't affect the hands. And this is the world's number one complaint of Christians that we are hypocrites, that we say we believe something, but we don't actually do it. And James calls that out here, and he says, that's actually dead faith, right? Now, everyone could probably quote with their mouth, John 3, 16, for good reason. And, um, but do you know, 1 John 3, 16, 1 John 3, 16 and 17 and 18 is worth memorizing and quoting as well. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That's what John is giving some great language to what James is talking about here. There are many people who declare with their words that they have faith in Christ, and they may even claim to be a Christian. But if there is not a changed life and good works following as a natural byproduct of the life of God living inside of them, then you probably have what we would call a false conversion or a false declaration of faith, or James would call it a dead faith. Now, know that strong language, and I'm not saying that I am judging you and I am asking if you have a dead faith, but I think you should ask yourself if you have a dead faith, especially if you know the words of Christianity, but you don't have the, the way or the works that should follow following Jesus, right? 
In verse 19, there's a reference to the Shema, if you are aware of the Shema, which is a really good thing to, to know in Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. And of course, if you know that great commandment, you know the next great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. And this part of James is, is incredible because James goes to two different extremes, probably to shock his readers. I mean, he even calls some of them foolish and to seeing how important it is to have a faith that is active instead of a faith that just says something. So he references the Shema, which is something Jewish people hold dear for good reason. And many have actually seen this, um, take it literally and, and actually write it on the doorpost in the frame of their like physical house, um, which is a really cool thing. It, like he, he talks about the Shema there, which is very sacred. And then in the next breath, talks about demons as an illustration, which is pretty crazy, okay? And this is the second type of faith that James is teaching. The first is dead faith. The second, it starts with a D, demonic faith, which is kind of a crazy category to think that demons have faith. Dead faith affects the head and the mouth, but it doesn't affect the emotions or the will. He says here, and he's the brother of Jesus, so let's, let's take him at it. The demons have faith better than that. They believe, and they do something more than believe. They shudder, or in other words, they are emotionally affected by the Son of God. So, so dead faith just maybe believes intellectually, maybe even says some things, but is not emotionally affected. Demonic faith believes and is emotionally affected because they, they kind of shudder and tremor at Jesus. Now, if this is kind of crazy to you, just read the Gospels and notice how at every interaction between an evil spirit and Jesus, they confess his lordship. He usually tells them to be quiet and not to let the cat out of the bag. And they are emotionally affected and freak out and ask him to like do something or get away from him. Pretty nuts. So those are two categories. Uh, dead faith, demonic faith. And then James describes a third type of faith. And just for the sake of going with the letter D, we'll just call it dynamic faith. Faith that saves, faith that transforms, faith that works, faith that's alive, faith that is actually faith. And he gives two extreme examples to prove this, and I really love it. He says, Abraham and Rahab. Abraham is probably the top, one of the top two leaders in the Old Testament, depending on how you rank He's either, it's either Moses and then Abraham or Abraham and then Moses, but he's without question in the top two of leaders in the Old Testament. And he uses that great leader, Abraham. And then on the other hand, he puts before us, um, in contrast to that, Rahab, right? So Abraham, a respected Jewish male, beloved patriarch, who's a friend of God. And then he's gonna contrast that, and I love this, with Rahab, who couldn't be more different than Abe. Rahab was a Gentile, not Jewish like Abraham. She was a female, not male like Abraham, obviously. She was ridiculed, not beloved like Abraham. She was a prostitute, not a patriarch. She belonged to the enemies of God, where Abraham was called a friend of God. Think about the contrast there. 
Jew, Gentile, male and female, beloved, ridiculed, patriarch, prostitute, friend of God, enemy of God. By the way, Rahab is this distant family member of Jesus, and James Matthew includes her in the genealogy of Jesus. So maybe this is James's way of getting one of his relatives into the gospel argument. I don't know, but it's, it's fascinating. And I love that about the gospel, as we talked about last week, is it levels everybody. It doesn't matter what race you are, what culture you come from, rich or poor, male or female, slave or free. Jesus levels everybody. Love that. And, and we kind of see that here, Abraham and Rahab, just even in the analogy that James gives us. I love that deep, deep treasure. Now, we don't have time to get into both of their stories, and you can do that on your own. But the point that James is driving home here is that both Abraham and Rahab, who are very different, they both exercised a saving faith that comes from, one, hearing the word of God, two, responding in mind, heart and will, and third, they took action. And the proof of that was that they were saved. They were justified. Righteousness was credited their, to their account. Now, we're introduced here to this long debate of faith and works. And is it faith and works that save you? Is it a little bit of faith and a little bit of works? Is it just good works? Is it only faith? And, and, and you get into the weeds on this, and, and that can get confusing depending on the language. But I think what we would say and how we would understand this is um, dynamic faith saves you. Um, Jesus is the author of our faith. And so when we receive and have dynamic faith authored in us and, and we welcome that and we receive that and we cooperate with that, we would say that the dynamic faith saves you and that dynamic faith is always accompanied by works, because the faith that is true, if it's true, it has to change you. It has to affect you in tangible rubber meets the road type of ways. It can't just be intellectual or it can't just be talk. It has to include the walk. And so it, maybe to tease that out, maybe a quote and a story would hopefully help um, make sense of how James is articulating this. Uh, Calvin said, it is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies can never be alone. Think about that. It is faith alone that justifies, but the faith that justifies can never be alone. Now, how I came to faith, I grew up in church. I always say I was born on a Thursday morning and by Sunday I was in the church nursery and I spent a lot of time in church as a kid. Um, I remember being out, of, um, being out of kids' church and going into adult church for the first time, which was incredibly boring. And, you know, there was no candy that they gave out. And, you know, I remember maybe 12 years old or something uh, sitting there. And I remember distinctly, vividly, one day, I heard our pastor, Brother Dial, Preach the gospel. And I remember I was like barely listening, but I was listening. And I remember going, uh-oh, what he's saying is true. I know myself and I'm in trouble. And he gave an altar call. If you want to receive Christ, we're going to play a song, come down the altar. Well, someone will come to and pray with you and all this stuff. I remember, I don't know, four or five, six hundred people being there and, you know, 
people have known me my whole life. And there was a little bit of like, it's as embarrassing to go down this aisle and what are people going to think of me? I just remember having to get up out of the aisle and go down and pray with somebody. And I think I was like the only person that day, which was incredibly awkward. And I met this old retired Air Force guy named Mike, and he gave me this like now what book. And he, um, he wrote his cell phone in there and prayed the sinner's prayer with me and all this stuff. And, and for a long time, I thought like the moment that I got saved, so to speak, or justified, or brought to, to life or born again was when I went down into the aisle or the, the, the altar area and prayed the sinner's prayer. And somewhere in between, dear Lord Jesus, I confess my sin and amen. Somewhere in there, I was born again. What I now know is that I heard the gospel preached. My mind agreed with it. My heart and emotions were stirred and convicted. And something happened in my will. And what I know is God saved me in my seat. And because he saved me in my seat, I had to do something. And I got up and walked down the aisle and went to the altar and prayed. But that prayer wasn't this magical incantation that suddenly brought me to life. God brought me to life while I was sitting down hearing the gospel. Faith comes by hearing. And it affected me, and I received this dynamic saving faith. And what accompanied that was, I, I got to do something. I can't just sit here, you know. And so that's been really helpful for me to, to articulate, and it's that, that may sound like semantics to you, but um, it wasn't me walking down the aisle that got me saved. God saved me in my seat. He just did it and I needed to respond. And, and then the work of sanctification began, which was just working out this faith that I'd been received. Um, so I hope that helps, what, where faith and works kind of, um, how they play together, especially in the role of salvation. All right, so for many, faith is presented as this eternal fire insurance. They're told, hell's hot, forever's a long time, you should know your options. And Jesus, for many, is more like an eternal State Farm agent. Some treat their faith like a bus ticket to heaven that they're just carrying around in their pocket. Yeah, I, I prayed this prayer, and, and I'm, I'm guaranteed travel to heaven. And no, I don't think it's like that. As Dallas Willard says, the gospel is not that God wants to get you into heaven when you die, but that God wants to get you into heaven before you die. And, and, and the implication is he wants to bring heaven to earth right now and do something right now and change you right now. So I want to ask you, what kind of faith do you have? Do you have a dead faith? Do you have a faith that is just in your head and you know how to say the right things? You know how to raise your hands at the right moment? You know how to play the game? But has it affected your emotions? Has Jesus affected your will? Have your actions changed? Do you actually walk the way of Jesus? Do you do the works of Jesus or are you kind of stopped at just the words. Do you have a dead faith? I, I think that's a painful question, but it's a good question to ask yourself. Another question that I kind of feel awkward to ask, but the text suggests it, is do you have the faith that demons have? 
where you believe and you might even shudder, but that's about it. And there's not really any action. I don't think I've ever asked anyone if they've had demonic faith, but here you go. It's the first time for everything. Or do you have a dynamic faith that is alive and works? Now, the gospel message is so clear. Jesus did the work for us by his life and death on the cross, his resurrection and his ascension. He did 100% of it for us. We don't earn the gospel. We don't earn salvation. It's something that he initiates in us. It's something he does. He brings us to life. But when he died on the cross for my sin and yours, he said, it is finished. And we refer to the work of Christ, the good works of Christ, as a finished work, super important, finished work. And what that means is Jesus did not die on the cross and say, I did most of the work, now it's up to you to believe in me, do some good work so that you'll get saved. Absolutely not. He did all the work and he gives that to us. And he, he makes us come alive. But when he makes us come alive, the byproduct is good works. It's just, that's the way it works. Romans says that faith comes by hearing the word of God. And my prayer is that for some of you who are watching and listening, some of you might be coming to faith right now even as I speak. Just as I gave my testimony of how I heard my pastor share the gospel and God began to do something in me and it wasn't me doing it. I wonder is God doing the same thing in you? Is he beginning to stir not just your mind and not just your emotions, but also your will and your, your deepest desires to affect change? I wanna encourage you, if that's you, pay attention to that. Surrender to that. Welcome Jesus in. Jesus doesn't need to be accepted as if he has low self-esteem and is lonely, but Jesus needs to be welcomed. And so welcome that, um, that saving work of Christ in. To your life. And if you need help working that out, let us know. Talk to us. We'd love to walk with you in that. For others, I'd like for you to give attention to and to consider what it looks like to allow your faith to work, to allow uh, barriers to be removed. Perhaps there are biases you have that prohibit your faith to work. Maybe there's distractions that you have. Maybe there are just, for whatever reason, just things that are blocking your faith actually working itself out. And it might be a good time to take that to the Lord, to take that to some friends, to figure that out, and to uh, figure out what it looks like tangibly and practically to work out the salvation you've already been given and that you've already experienced as Philippians 2 gives language to, read Philippians 2 on this, about working out your, your faith in fear and trembling. And so I want to encourage you, even if you are a person of faith, don't gloss over this because it's of grave importance. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, not everyone who comes to him and says, there it is, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. But he says in Matthew 7, the person who does the will of his father. And then he backs that up with not everyone who comes to him and says, Lord, Lord, look at all these great things we've done. Because he'll say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. This issue of having a faith that doesn't just uh, say things uh, and, and having a faith that actually believes, says, and does is very important. And um, we need to receive real faith from Jesus that works inside of you 
and that works outside of you and from a place. If you read Matthew chapter 25 this week, I'd encourage you to do that about the sheep and the goats. Jesus is coming to you in very real ways right now and how you respond to him, similar to how people responded to him in the sheep and the goats story, how, he, how you respond to him when he's present in the least of these, it might reveal to you the quality of faith that you have or don't have. From a practical standpoint, I could easily give you a massive list of ways to work out your faith like Philippians 2 talks about. I give you ways to exercise a saving faith that works. I could talk about the poor, the sex trafficked, the abused, the racial injustice and inequality that we continue to see, the horror of abortion, walking with and loving those who have a mental illness, helping the sick, the foreigner, the widow, the orphaned, those who need to be adopted, foster care. The list is kind of endless, and, and I feel bad even naming categories or people groups or issues that are prevalent because there's so much brokenness. There's so much residue of sin and the fall and poor human choices in our world. It's hard to list them out. The reality is, we have so many ample opportunities to put our faith into action, to put our love into action, and to not do good things so that we will be saved, but to understand that if we are truly saved, we will do good things from that place. And so I, I don't want to prescribe to you X, Y, or Z, or go do this, or get on board with this, and you'll have a saving faith. I think it would be wiser and better to encourage you to look at the foundations of your faith and to test the quality and the type of faith you have to ask for, to pray for, to seek out, to receive more of the love of God, more of his Holy Spirit, as you cultivate a white-hot faith inside of you that is dynamic and not dead and not demonic, if you know how to recognize, listen to, and obey the leading of the Holy Spirit, here's what will happen. God will lead you naturally into the good works that he has already prepared for you. Ephesians 2.10. And guess what? When your faith starts to work itself out, as you begin to step into good works, as we're talking here, it won't feel like work because God is in it and God is doing most of the heavy lifting. And we call that from a theological perspective, God's grace. God's grace is not letting you get away with something. God's grace is God's power. It's power for weakness. And so uh, you gotta imagine, I'm sorry, but you get the point. Grace is God's power. And so when you recognize the Holy Spirit and you get on board with that and you start to um, lend your heart to him and you allow faith to transform your mind and your mouth and your heart and your emotions and your will and what you do with your money and your time and your free time and your life and all these things, God will lead you if you are sincere. And that is so much better than prescribing doing all these things. Now, I said it doesn't, it won't feel like work, and I'm not saying that it's going to be a cakewalk or that it'll be easy per se or that there will be no spiritual warfare or opposition. 
I hope you get the point that dynamic faith that has truly saved you, it'll just naturally give birth to good works. And where you don't see that, you should go hunting and excavate why. It won't feel like earning. Um, there will be effort, but you won't need to feel like you're earning salvation or earning God's love or earning approval for your salvation. Now, that's some deep homework. That's a deep subject, talking about dead faith, demonic faith. Do you have dynamic faith? How does that work out? Matthew 25, Matthew 7, Philippians 2. Like, this is no small thing. And that's some deep stuff. And if you are, if you are on that journey, it's going to probably involve a lot of time. It's going to involve a lot of prayer, reflection, lots of coffee, perhaps some counseling and therapy, maybe some good soul friends. This is the deep work of discipleship, really. Um, and that's, that, that could be tough, depending on where you're at. But I, I want to give you an additional homework assignment. And it's not very daunting, and it's kind of easy. And um, it's, it's taking what we call the heart, home, hood, and church assessment. We need a name for church that starts with an H for this to really work. But if you can think of one, send in. I couldn't think of a name for church to start with an H. But here's what you do. You take a piece of paper, and in the center of it, you write the, the word heart. And you draw a circle around it. And outside of that, you write their own home, and then you draw a circle around that. And then you go outside of that, you write the name hood, which is short for neighborhood, in case you didn't catch it. You draw a circle around that. Then you write church, draw a circle around that. If you wanted to, you could extend this to city, your state, nation, world, solar system, whatever. But for now, let's start with heart, home, hood, church. Let's get that before we start trying to go national. Start with the heart. And, and, and you could apply a lot of different questions to this, but this is the question you could ask today. How does your faith affect and work out in your heart, just personally? How does your faith affect you personally? How does it work out and give fruit personally? That's most important. Then take a step outward. How do you exercise your faith in your home? How do your roommates or your fellow family members, your spouse, your kids, your parents, etc. How does your home or your family experience the loving others, the loving your neighbor as yourself? Okay, okay. Heart, home. Then you go hood. You go to your community, your neighborhood that you live in. You might even include your workplace in the sphere. How do you work out your faith? How does you put love into action and faith into action? In your neighborhood, okay? And then you can go to your church, right? And I think the sequence is important. Some people want to exercise their faith at church, but not their home. Get, you're getting out of order there, right? So then your church. And, and you can work that out. Cool exercise. Now, here's why I offer this. Many times I talk to people about loving others or doing good works or putting love or faith in action. And because we're both Americans and Texans, we want to go big or go home. And we often like shoot for the moon and try to envision something epic and heroic that would put our names in the history books and get us a lot of followers on, on Twitter or whatever. Here's the deal. If you think like that, if you think like a Texan or an American, it's paralyzing. And most of the time, most of the time when I see people in our church or even friends start to dream big, which there's a time for that, most people experience paralysis and they end up not doing anything. 
because they can't figure out or think of this grand heroic thing to do. Most of us will not be Billy Graham or Wilbur Wilberforce or Mother Teresa. But Mother Teresa said, we cannot all do great things, but we can do small things with great love. I'd rather you be filled with the love of God, filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at who's in front of you, like Matthew 25 talks about, and then just do the Spirit-led little things with great love. That is a faith that works. That is the fruit of dynamic faith that saves. Jesus, we call to you the author and perfecter of our faith. We say, for some, this is a hard teaching because it calls forth real change, real acceptance of you. And we ask for your help. God, for some listening and watching, um, maybe there's some who feel like they've got a counterfeit faith and they have really a dead faith, a, a faith that looks more like fire insurance and not a dynamic saving faith that works and that has fruit and that has the natural byproduct of your life in them. God, I pray that this would be a big moment for them where they can experience your Holy Spirit bringing them to life. I pray you would begin to do in others what you did to me when I was 12, where you saved me in my seat and you caused a holy stir inside of me and you brought a dead thing inside of me to life. What I pray you would save and bring to life people watching and listening to this right now. God, for those who are... Um, wrestling through what does faith in action look like? What does walking in the good works you've already prepared look like? I pray right now, God, you begin to speak to them, reveal to them any blockages, any barriers, any excuses, any distractions, any trauma or wounding that's getting in the way of being every bit of the person that you have called them and saved them to be. And God, finally, for our entire church, Help us to be a city on a hill. Help us to be a salty group of people. We're completely content with being small but mighty. We want to bear fruit for you. We want to uh, be bountiful in the good works you have prepared us to do in many different aspects of our life and our culture and our neighborhood and our city, and especially in these confusing and disorienting and challenging times. Lord, we invite you to teach us what it means to be real people of dynamic faith, to be a real community that is centered on you, that worships you, that fellowships, that has a mission. Lord, you are our pastor. You are our leader. And we look to you. We ask for your help. We seek your blessing. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we Amen.